the church has such a, a rich array of, of hymnody. The church's music, I have argued, uh, forms the imagination. It builds what I call a historical consciousness that can be exercised in times of sorrow and in times of celebration. You know this throughout biblical history. Paul and Silas sang in the jail cell in the 60s AD. Bonhoeffer sang in the jail cell in the 1940s AD. Christians have a history of building their theological stamina through the music of the church. It's the church's music, I have argued for a long time, that forms the theological creeds of a church, whether for good or for ill. One of those iconic pieces of music that we have sung throughout much, at least in the last couple of hundred years in the church, that shapes the doctrine of the church, is that great hymn, The Church's One Foundation. It's a very rich apologetic for what I want to talk about this morning. Verse 4, the church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish, is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her, and false sons in her pale, against both foe or traitor, she ever will prevail. A very solitary verse in the midst of this titanic display of goodness concerning the theology of the church in this great hymn here. And this one little verse that I just quoted for you really offers a variety of great themes that we ought to develop and even think through as we think about the doctrine of the church. In that verse, we hear the theology of victory, the theology of preservation, of faithfulness, and even a little hint of a theology of apostasy borrowed from Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10. And what we see here is the hymn writer portrays a church that is prevailing, a church that is persevering, an image of a body that thrives and succeeds even despite her many foes. But the image that we've just sung is not the image of the church that we hear in our society today. It's certainly not the ethos of the evangelical corpus in our day. The reality is that many of the evangelical thinkers or sociologists view the church through the lens of what sociologist Aaron Rand wrote, the negative world concerning the church. They think through the negative world, means they think through the lens of criticism, they think through the lens of destroying the very source of what we believe to be divine, holy, good, and true. For many of these sociologists, the church is a prodigal, prostituting body with many sons, false ones in her pale. Now, I don't have any doubt about some of that description. I've tried to articulate that through a lot of my writing. There's plenty to lament in the church. No doubt about that. But hymns are a many splendored thing, aren't they? They tell a rich story of lament, but they also detail for us a very rich story of triumph. There is a cheerful eschaton, a cheerful view of the telos of history that awaits the church's future. Our starting presupposition is that against foe or traitor, she ever will prevail. That's where we need to begin our understanding and the way we frame the conversation about the church. The church was instituted with the backbone to endure, with muscles that will not atrophy, no matter how long Moses keeps his hands raised or no matter how long she fights. We saw a lot of this during COVID, didn't we? We saw during COVID that the churches that continued to tell her story Sunday after Sunday, who didn't relinquish or submit her story to other publishing companies, namely the state, those churches found the strength to ever prevail. They found the strength to lament as they should, but also to 
think and to delight in the prevailing character of her own institution. American evangelicals are very fond in our day of criticizing the church, of referring to it as a place of hypocrites and charlatans, and that's the image that most have of the nature of the church today. And the response of these people, generally ecclesiastical experts on Twitter, the response of these people <laughs> is to hate the institutional church, to leave her, and then what they do is they will say, we will run away as far away from the church, but we will do is we will create a church after our own image. They have de-churched so that they can re-church as they see fit. And then suddenly the failure of one pastor, whoever he may be, becomes the failure of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church of 2,000 years. Church becomes a place where experiences dictate whether it is good or not, whether it is a failure or not. The negative world outside the church, the, the, the critical world outside the church, um, the leftist attacks on the church, on the basic Christian ethic of the church, that's common. We're used to it by now. We know what that looks like. We're used to hearing Bill Maher, MSNBC, and all those other imbeciles negate the very purpose of the church. We're used to that. But I want to address briefly here, before I make a case for a positive, uh, a positive world of the church, is that there's also a negative view of the church. There's a negative world from within. There's a negative world that comes from within the walls of the church, within the church's one foundation. That's where the negative world sometimes comes with most amount of lament. It comes from within. Sometimes it comes from very sweet families, very well-intentioned moms and dads. And church leaders need to be aware of these trends as well. They need to see that at times the negative world reaches deep into the ethos, into the culture of the church. And that congregants that come into the body, into this one holy Catholic apostolic church, congregants who function like that, who function in the negative world, who function in the critical world, what they typically do is they instill a sense of sorrow within the body of Christ. They are sort of a, a continual dripping faucet, bringing misery, sadness, and sorrow to the body of Christ. In many ways, this, this was the very fabric, as many of you know, the very fabric of our dear brother Greg Strawbridge's labors. He worked tirelessly to train men to keep their ministerial hands raised through many toils and snares, to train men not to grow weary in well-doing, even when false sons are everywhere and when people within are seeking to destroy its peace, seeking to cause havoc within her life. Churches will always, will always be composed of unsettled members. Always. But often, typically what that means is that they are unsettled in life and they will use that unsettling to unsettle the life of the church. These are the kinds of people I'm addressing. These are the kinds of people who function in the negative world. They typically don't want to submit to authority figures, to the life of the church, but they want to cre recreate the church after their own image. They want to function as God by creating the church in their own image, in their own likeness. And we need to see that these kinds of members are encouraged to run away from a negative world to a positive world, to see the goodness of the church, to see how God's purposes through the church is going to shape these individuals, these humans, these family units, and shape their society for their own good, even though they may not yet know it. Paul says that families are to make the pastor's work a joy, 
and not a burden, Hebrews 13. But it does become a burden when parishioners don't understand their role in the church as fruitful and faithful participants in the life of the body. Or when parishioners seek independence from the church, they ultimately become the very problem of the church. They're embracing the negative world. This was clear during COVID. You remember how these things unfolded. I'm just regurgitating them for you. The members who were most independent, unhappy about any kind of authority, found refuge in a self-created reality, sometimes in front of their own televisions. I had uh, more than one conversation about this. Someone would, would say or call me and say, are you guys open? And I would say, yes. And then they would discover maybe we're too far from them. They couldn't come. And they would say something. Well, I'm, I'm a gifted student of the Bible. I don't need any theological training. I studied the word of God for a very long time. I've done my good job with my children. Why do I need to gather with other saints when I can do this with my own? Or with a couple of friends. Or we can simply just stick with the live stream system here. These are the kinds of families who will say, we need to return. You may have heard this. We need to return to the paragon of perfection in 35 A.D., in the first century, the first century church. And the problem, of course, is sometimes these families, generally fathers, what they end up doing, as I have seen for almost two decades now, is they take their families into that weary journey of isolation, that weary journey of danger, where they find themselves away from society, where they find themselves incapable of regaining a structure within their own homes, and they lose the very beauty of what we've just sung in the church's one foundation. A pastor told me a few weeks ago that one of his parishioners left his congregation because he thought his Sunday morning would be much more well spent doing mercy ministry in downtown Pensacola to the poor. Spirituality is hot. Good deeds are hot. Religion, not so much. Religion kills, they say. Hierarchy and structures very bad things. We need independence. We are the captain of our fate, the master of our souls, in the church, in the family, everywhere, really. I mean, think of the phenomenon of overlooking the requirement that God has given us explicitly in his word, the requirement of worship. Back home, we have all sorts of excuses because we live in the finest beaches on planet Earth. People will say things like, well, on Sunday morning, I feel God's presence when I'm sitting in Pensacola Beach. Or you're feeling something. <laughs> or the pulpit that I have stood on for many years, and the very issue, I, I, usually, I, I do so much writing, and I get a lot of angry emails. And this is the issue where I get most angry emails. It's not in the things I write politically, but it's on this here. It's my opposition to travel sports on Sundays. The most amount of hate I've ever received in my life as a writer and as a minister is my opposition to travel sports on the Lord's Day. These are the kinds of things, a list of other excuses are the kinds of things pastors are hearing today from those within the church. This is the negative world, not at a, theor at a theoretical level, not at an abstract or philosophical level. This is a negative world in all of its practicalities within the church. It's not just a mere complaining. It's not just a mere track record of dissatisfied emails that keep coming day and night at 2 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It's practical at the very core. There's something more happening here in the negative world within the church that churches need to be self-aware and that congregants need to absorb so that they don't become that very definition. There's a growing movement among self-proclaimed evangelicals and in the broader culture to get spirituality without religion, to find a relationship 
without the rules and to have a God without the church. They're not satisfied, as they will make it very clear in their Facebook posts, they're not satisfied with the church of our Lord, so they become a church unto themselves, or what I have called ecclesiastical anarchists. Biblically and historically, that is not an option. That is not an option. There are legitimate reasons to leave churches, legitimate reasons to transfer your membership to another congregation. We're not talking about that. There's no legitimacy to leave the institution of church altogether. My argument is that the negative world within the church often le leads to the negative world without the church. The negative world within the church leads to a negative world outside the church. Why is that the case? Because the church is the paradigmatic institution among all other institutions. And the habits of the life of the church are the habits that will be practiced outside the church. So we need a kind of discernment within the church. We do. We need discernment to see what is good, true, and beautiful. But the negative world doesn't seek to discern. The negative world doesn't discern. The negative world simply delegitimizes the institutional body. And the inevitable end result is that the false sons within her pale will ultimately delegitimize themselves. You don't have to look very far. I've been traveling through the New England area, and you have all these gorgeous buildings, completely empty, almost as if they were like little uh, replicas of what you see in Europe. We see examples of this in the mainline churches today. The mainline churches, consider their status in our day. The mainline churches the PCUSA, the LCA, the American Baptist in the USA, United Methodists, and, and others, have taken the, the trajectory of death throughout. They have been declining for 75 years now. And their response is, we've been declining for 75 years. Our problem surely must be, we're not inclusive enough. <laughs> right? they, have sought power, they have sought to bestow power on inclusivism. They have anointed corrupt priests to lead the way, and to hell they led. This was confirmed uh, last week, I think, when the Church of England reached what I call a crescendo of filth when they finally approved formally blessings for gay couples for the first time. And the Archbishop, this is, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, and the Archbishop of York, Stephen Cottrell, said in the joint, this is what they said. For the first time, the Church of England will publicly, unreservedly, and joyfully welcome same-sex couples in the church. The church continues to have deep differences on these questions which go to the heart of our human identity. Oh, yes, it does. It's the heart of our human identity, and it's also the heart of what it means to be a church. The church's role is to be faithful and to be discerning, true, while the false sons will deconstruct themselves, and we should pray in our pastoral prayers, that may the, may the false sons deconstruct themselves into oblivion. But our great hymn says, amidst all this corruption, amidst all this foolishness and imbecility, our great hymn says, the church will ever prevail. She ever will prevail. And that's the positive world coming out in the music of the church. That's why we need to sing great hymns. It's a happy ecclesiology that builds courageous church members. But it not only builds courageous church members, it also builds members who desire the good of the church. These congregations that are discerning are the kinds of congregations that we need in our day. Congregations who see the bigger picture. These are precisely the congregations that are continuing to grow in the United States today, if you've noticed that. Especially congregations of the Reformed persuasion. 
2020, 2021, 2022, I would receive probably an average of seven to eight phone calls a week from people uh, in California, Pacific Northwest, trying to find churches to move into. They were looking for conservative churches, churches where their values would be proclaimed, but also churches where their identity could be honored. So we need to put these statistics into perspective here before we hear from the negative world and we begin to accept what they're saying. The end is not near. The church is not about to be doomed. The church is not in an apocalyptic crisis. This is, in my estimation, the most fruitful season in my 43 years of existence that the church has ever functioned. And as a student of history, I could probably go farther than that. This is perhaps the most revolutionary season of church growth, but the right kind of church growth. Growth growth from within, growth from the body of Christ who desires the good of the city, the preservation of orthodoxy, and the good of our Reformed heritage. There is great hope. I mean, let's think of a couple of examples of this here. The resurgence of an optimistic eschatology. The resurgence of post-millennial eschatology. The resurgence of a, a victorious way of looking at the future. This was not the kind of conversation I was having in college 25 years ago. Not at all. Not even among Presbyterians. Today, it has become a common conversation in the academic world and within the church itself. Or think about the massive revival of psalm singing. Are you following what's happening? The Romanian church, the Romanian church, I won't give too many details about this, but the Romanian church, who does not have a history of psalm singing, has been listening to the music sung by CREC churches. And as of a month ago, they had their first national psalm singing conference in the history of Romania. There's a revival of psalm singing, all sorts of evangelical groups. Sometimes I'll go to evangelical churches, big Southern Baptist churches, and I would teach them how to sing the psalms. And I'll start real... I'll start with Psalm 23, something real common. And they think it is revolutionary. Revolution. And it is. But it's now it's been absorbed into our bloodstream. For us, that which is common for those outside is something remarkable. Or think about the market of books on worship today. Very inspiring. The increased interest in weekly communion and pedo communion is more magnified than when I began my pastorate 15 years ago. The application of the Lordship of Jesus to all areas of life. This sort of revived Kyperianism. Healthy pastoral training centers sponsored by local churches like the Theopolis Institute. Training leaders to interpret the Bible faithfully. These are marvelous signs of progress. None of which I saw when I began in my pastoral work. And we're seeing today in large amounts. And I have my feet in a lot of different worlds. And I'm seeing this as a trend, not merely as an isolated pattern. Because none of these things are areas that are going to be transformed overnight. We don't, we don't function like that. We think covenantally. We think about what's going to happen in 40, 80 years down the road. We prepare for the long term. We are in the process of planting and plowing. We're praying that future generations may see the fruits of our labors today in more tangible ways than what we are seeing today. But members within the church need to see that the work of the church is a great project. And we all need to come together to accept our mission to accept our membership vows in whatever churches you attend and come together understanding what our role is as members of the body of Christ. We live in the ordinary, and the members of the church who delight in the ordinary, who build one another, who encourage one another in lament and triumph, they are the ones, and their children will be the ones, who will most find solace and benefit 
from the labor and the work of the church. On the other hand, those who grumble and complain and who show incessant dissatisfaction will become more and more isolated from the life of the body, and they're going to create the culture of individualism within their homes. Virtually every counseling session I have of major, of epic proportions are generally with fathers who have isolated their own children. Virtually every counseling conversation I have with children who are considering abandoning the church have fathers, mainly fathers, who have taken that route. We are to journey together as a people in all walks of life. Those who are hurting, those who are revived, those who are struggling, but we are together with all those who find Christ as our one true foundation. Yes, Jesus is alive and well, and his church continues to prevail, even though there are foes and traitors everywhere. Well, we can discuss the negative world of the church and the kinds of ordinary problems that assail her, but what I want to move here for the next few minutes is what is the, the nature of the church? How does the church prevail? What is her function? What is her role? What's her identity in this age? What does a shifting from a negative world to a positive world, what does a positive world look like concerning the church? And in these conversations, it's always important to grasp a little bit of the definition of the church, because too often, those who live in the negative world have created their own lexicons for the church. They're, they're the ones defining the terms, rather than allowing the church to define the terms themselves. But the church is defined in history and in holy scriptures. Let's begin with the language of Calvin, uh, the language of Calvin who talks about the church. This is what he writes. Our Reformed uh, patron saint writes, Let us learn from her single title, Mother, how useful, nay, how necessary the knowledge of her is. She conceives us in the womb and gives us birth and nourishes us at her breasts. Or the language of the Westminster Confession of Faith. The church is the house and family of God out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Now, I don't know exactly what the ecclesiastical culture is here in Pennsylvania, but I do know what it is in the South. And the definitions I've just read would have led at least 99 out of 100 people to panic. Paul goes, in some ways, even beyond that, more authoritatively than any reformer. He's inspired by the Spirit. He writes in Galatians 4 that the church, the Jerusalem above, she is free. She is the mother of us all, Galatians chapter 4. Christians know that God is our Father, Ephesians 3, that Christ is the bridegroom, Ephesians 5, but very few modern Christians know that we have a spiritual mother, the very language of the Old Testament scriptures. She is the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, Revelation 21. She is the lamb's wife, Revelation 21.9. She is the historical church composed of all branches, of all sorts of branches. She is a gathered assembly. Her very name, Ecclesia, means a political assembly, a political corporate body coming together for a particular mission. She is an assembly covenanted around word, covenanted around sacraments. She is sustained by the very Spirit of God who strengthens her and enables her to carry out the mission of the Son of God. She's led by faithful leaders who represent Christ. Just as our Lord is the shepherd, just as our Lord is the protector of his bride, pastors of churches are called to shepherd and protect their sheep 
from all those that hate her and false sons in her pale. And even against forward traitor, Christ has promised that she ever will prevail. But in order for her to prevail, what we need to do is we must see the motherly presence of the church, not as one that simply coddles her children, but as one that instructs, one that protects, and one that cares for her children. And this means that the unpopular doctrine of church discipline needs to make a comeback in our day. The central characteristic of her success will be her ability to purify herself, to practice church discipline, to identify the false sons, to rebuke, to exhort, and perhaps ultimately sanction, to excommunicate the false sons and daughters in her pale. The church practices discipline as a positive measure to prevail in our time. If she doesn't do that, within 20 years, she will be the PCUSA. She will be the LCA. She cannot allow error to enter her doors, but like a robust and principled mother, she is to keep all predators away from her children. The keys of the kingdom are given to root the church in her very labors. This is all necessary because the church is not the creation of men. She is not the design of some earthly architect. She is the beauty, she is the splendor, she is the aroma, she is the apologetic of God to the world. The church is how God says, this is who I am. And the more beautiful, the more pure she is, the more attracted the nations will be to the house of the Lord, as Isaiah says. She is the ancient, she is the present, she is the future bride. And my message to congregations, wherever I, I talk about the church, is the same in every context, because the principles are the same in every context. That you would recommit yourselves to the church of our Lord, especially to our local congregations, because I believe we are meant to demonstrate the presence of God in the world by joining a visible, local body of people. And if you are here, perhaps wondering, hmm, whether or not you should join a local church, this is the time. And if it's not the time, you're going to miss out on the great work that God is doing. The church is ripe for revival. The question is, will you watch from the outside, or will you participate in its glory from within? I love the words of Bonhoeffer, whom I've wrote quite a bit about. The body of Christ becomes visible to the world in the congregation gathered around word and sacrament. Or the missiologist Stephen Neal who says, the gospel cannot be separated from that new people of God in which its nature is to be made manifest, namely the church. That's why the epistles, they don't make a case for. The epistles assume structure. They assume order and decency. They assume leadership. They assume and presuppose nurture. The church as the elect people of God is both an organism and an organization. She's an organism in that she is breathing, growing, maturing. The church is a, a living thing. But it's also an organization. It is also an institution. Don't allow certain models to diminish the institutional nature of the church. She is an institution comprised of order, 1 Corinthians 14, with institutional norms, 1 Corinthians 5, with doctrinal standards, 1 Corinthians 15, with defined rituals, 1 Corinthians 11. This is the way God created his church. This is the way he meant to rule, direct, and guide her. 
And any view of the church that diminishes these two features as an organism and as an organization will create, trust me, a culture of disrespect in the flock. Of disrespect. If you only view the church as an organism, you're going to expect the church to function to cater to your interests, to care for your woes only. If you only view the church as an organization, as many have, then you're going to be passive. You're going to be an intellectual recipient of the church. Let's let the elite do all the good things. Let's let the elite musicians do all the singing while we just remain passively. But you are called to see your role as a receiver and a giver. You are an actor and an actress in the maturation and in the proclamation of the glories of the church. And that's why the prevailing of the church requires a people gathered for an organic and an organizational purpose. This renewed, this recreated, this restored, and this repentant people find their ultimate and most satisfying end in the worship of the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And when this worship occurs in the midst of the assembly, in the presence of God himself, we're not just simply offering our gentle petitions to God that he would just make us better Christians. That's not what we're doing when worship takes place. We're actually reminding God of his covenant with us, reminding him of the promise that he has made to us, which are never, maybe, perhaps, but are always yes and amen. We remind God that he has promised to deliver, to strengthen, to nurture, to protect us from evil, and to make this earth as it is in heaven, a renewed Eden. We are desiring the good of the city. We ought to desire corporately the prosperity of the church. So then, how do we increase in love for this church? Let me just offer a couple of, a couple of steps here as I close this first talk here. Uh, what, I, what we want to do as we move in love for the church's one foundation, who is Jesus, you must love Jesus. You can't love Jesus without loving his bride. We all say in the South, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. <clears throat> you can't act as if you're making the father happy without also making the mother happy. The church is our mother. And what we wish to do is to rebuild practically our love for the church's one foundation, Jesus Christ. And we can only do that if we love the foundation, if we love the church. I'm arguing for a renewed zeal for the church. Yes, even with all her warts, with all her woes, but also the same body who has triumphed over tribulation for 2,000 years, and if you're good, covenantally, for longer, longer, longer than that, all the way from the days of the garden. So a couple of steps as we increase our love for the church, desire to see her peace, desire to see her regain a certain presence in, in society. It was fascinating, I was addressing a group of uh, D.C. staffers a couple of days ago to hear their thoughts after my talk, which was entitled, An Ecclesioconservatism. Uh, the talk in D.C. about the church is quite unique, because they view power literally resting in the state as the very source, as the mother of us all, right, in D.C. there. And to hear their observation was very unique, as if I said something extremely foreign to them. And it is foreign into a world where, where power is held by politicians, uh, where, where, where the state creates its own priesthood, where the state has their own clothing, their own garments, their own vestments, their own liturgical colors. Yes, they want to claim that power. But the church is 
one foundation is Jesus Christ. Jesus created the church as his lover, as the one who is the aroma of all that is good, as the one who is the true renewed sacrifice of God. I want to begin by addressing the, uh, the issue of Catholicity here, which I think is an important issue. We need as members of the Church of Christ uh, to be open to the values in other Christian traditions. This is one of those things that become quite clear during COVID, is that we suddenly realized that the differences that in many ways divided us were actually not as significant as we first thought, and we realized that we, need, we have uh, bigger enemies to combat. And of course, we uphold our distinctives, we uphold who we are, but at the same time, it's a good season for Presbyterians and Baptists and conservative Methodists to gather their voices and to speak to the kinds of things that are happening in our society. Whether through informal or formal alliances, these things need to take place. And this happens only if you understand that the church is one, holy, and Catholic. That she thrives in her Catholicity. She thrives in her beauty of diversity. We need to embrace a vision that maintains for us, I presume for most of us in the Reformed tradition, that maintains the integrity of the Reformed uh, Reforma the Protestant Reformation while also seeking to listen and learn from other people. The great reform slogan, which is not as old as many think, but it's still fruitful today, we are reformed and always reforming. But that slogan doesn't fix our situation, does it? Because we're still prone as a people to fall into two ditches. The first one is we can attempt to reform too quickly. We can become satisfied with the values of other traditions so quickly that we end up losing our identity in the process of reforming. I've, I've talked a little bit about this in the last few months, but the older I get, the crankier I become as a Protestant. And the reason I become crankier as a Protestant is because I'm finding greater refuge in our own history. I'm realizing that it is a good thing to be a Calvinist. It is a good thing to love the sovereignty of God. It is a good thing to know that history is orchestrated by a God who does all things well. We're prone to accepting other traditions and just sort of bringing them into our own and forming this sort of schizophrenic model. And we can learn, certainly, from all these things, but while we attempt to grow and mature in our love for the church by seeking the wisdom from other traditions, we certainly, as a people, need to go back to a lot of our ABCs as a Reformed body. We need to reflect and to spend time in our own Protestant Reformed tradition to love Calvin, to love Bootser, to love the Puritan tradition, to love the Princetonian tradition of B.B. Warfield and Charles Hodge, to love our, our present beautiful tradition of the late R.C. Sproul, of Greg Strawbridge, of Douglas Wilson, and many others. We are a body that is growing in our tradition, in the beauty of the Reformed faith. Read our authors. Meditate on our history and heritage. We must situate ourselves first before tasting the glories and wisdom of other theological traditions. But the other ditch that we can fall into is that of being so obsessed with our own tradition that we end up isolating ourselves. We end up incapable or lacking the capacity to grow in knowledge and to grow in insight in the way the church has progressed, in the way the church has learned. When others deviate from our reform paths, they're immediately seen as a threat. When others deviate from certain dynamics of the reform tradition, that were clear 600 years ago, 550 years ago, 500 years ago, 300 years ago, 
But when the church has grown in certain areas, typically we sort of isolate them, and you've seen this happen quite a bit. They have, many have treated the denomination that I'm a part of, the CREC, as kind of a, a frightening figure to be despised and shunned. And in many ways, what's happening in the culture wars of our day is the people that were shunned and mocked 20 years ago are the ones taking positions of prominence in our society and guiding the church in the path that she should go. James B. Jordan notes that the best trajectory is to combine a strong commitment to reform the integrity with a strong commitment to Catholicity. A strong commitment to reform the integrity and a strong commitment to Catholicity. And one way we flesh out this biblical Catholic spirit for us as a people should be through the supper of our Lord. By God's grace, and I'm so grateful for the Reformation, by God's grace, the Reformation restored the Lord's table away from the mysticism. And you need to see how mysticism functions in the third world country where I grew up. It is mystical to the core. One of the, one of the memories I have growing up in northeastern Brazil was waking up at 6 o'clock in the morning with processionals taking place in my front yard with around 50 to 100 Catholics chanting certain things in Latin, carrying all sorts of saints, saints from the church, and saints from their mystical tradition. They were content to attend Mass on Sundays and then cherish their syncretistic religion to whatever goddess that they deemed right. The Reformation restored the table from the mysticism of Rome. And many of our Reformed churches have also restored the table from the kind of pietism that so engulfed the Reformed tradition. The table needs to be restored to those who are baptized in the triune name. And many are moving in that direction. I mean, think about the, the very nature, if I mentioned earlier here, that many for, for decades and decades were treating our little ones as if they were secondary citizens. But now they're opening the table even to the least of these. It's a fascinating movement. In many ways, I think churches that practice these things, that allow children to table, are winning the day. The table is the Lord's. It is not bound to men's restrictions. So, allow the weekly celebration of the Lord's table to shape your Catholicity. The openness, the Catholicity of the table is there for a reason. And may that Catholicity cause all of us to understand your role in the church as one of commitment to integrity and one of commitment to mutual encouragement. That's the first thing, tasting Catholicity. The second one is that we are to ground our spirituality in the great seasons and the great time and the great life of the church. Now, most of our churches follow the church calendar, but as I've said recently, I think one of the, one of the primary confusions of our church today has to do with who owns time. Who is it that owns time? Does the church own time or does the state own time? It's a matter of whose time will you absorb. And I think that those who follow the, your standard evangelical church calendar, at the very least the major seasons of the church year, are winning the day. Because they're framing our cultural scenario, our cultural context, by the church's time, not by how the state dictates time. This should be a great time for us as a people to connect our agenda as individual families, as single people, to the agenda of the church. Your Google calendars should look like a church calendar. 
Here is where the church meets. Here's what's happening in the life of the church. It should be all marked there. Your personal calendar should be absorbed into the calendar of the church. But too often, we easily, especially in the south where I live, we allow the civic calendar to shape our calendars, forgetting that the church has historically formed her own calendar, her own time. And I, as a Brazilian American, I'm the first one to delight in my civic calendar, just as much as the next door patriot. But God puts sacred time in a preeminent category. There are lots of great books, by the way. I'd be happy to give references to this for activities for children, special readings for certain times of the year. We have failed in many ways to catechize our children in the liturgical imagination. We have catechized them in the data, in the information. We have failed to catechize them in the liturgical imagination. We need to show the world that it is the church of our Lord that is the genesis of celebration not the state. And that means we need to add festivity to the heart of church life by allowing the church to be the center of all feasting, the center of all feasting. But we also need to see time rightly with all its powerful emotions flooding the life of the church. That's why the calendar is so significant because she embraces the sorrow of Lent and uses that sorrow to prepare us for the joy of Easter. We need to connect our daily lives to the life of the church because it captures the various psalmic moods of the people of God in times of lament and in times of triumph. Catholicity, the calendar, and finally, I believe this question is crucial in forming our view of the church and our children's view of the church, and that is our participation in the life of the body. Your involvement is a direct image, a direct representation of how you view the church. Your involvement is a direct representation and reflection of how high your view of the church is. We're fully aware of our responsibilities to gather on the Lord's Day here, but then so many of us sort of treat community life and hospitality during the week as if it were just some optional thing that we enter into if we want to. The Apostle Paul never mentioned these things as possibilities or potentialities, but as imperatives. The church militant receives her war instructions on Sunday so that she may make war with the world throughout the week. And she does this through evangelism, through faithfulness in our workplaces, and she also does this through the aroma of our kitchens. We show the world the beauty of our God, the beauty of the Lord's bride, by the communion of saints around a table, around a fireplace, around one another. We cannot claim love of our Lord without loving the bride and her activities. And that is why we need to be constantly under the care, under the nurture of Mother Church. We cannot abandon, we cannot trivialize, we cannot act as if what we do is merely optional. No, the bride of Christ is essential. She is glorious. She is God's profound apologetic to the world. If she is ever to prevail, she must prevail in the rituals of her ecclesiastical life. The rituals which Christ lived out in love for us and whose life has become a pleasing aroma for the nations. The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish, is with her to the end. Though there be those who hate her, false sons in her pale, but against foe or traitor, she ever 
will prevail. Our Father and our God, we thank you for our time. We thank you for the goodness of your gifts to us and your church, for your people. May their hearts dwell in all of the beauty and splendor. May their hands delight in all her labor and joy. And may their faces smile to the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ, who smiles upon us with his benediction. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. Amen. Questions? We've got a few minutes. All right, we have a few minutes for any questions, comments, observations. Any thoughts? Love to hear from you. I mean, I came all the way to Lancaster to hear from you. <laughs> so you better say something. Yes, sir. Regarding uh, what you mentioned about the pushback against the observance of the Lord's Day, um, it, it seems like that's one of the hardest things for the modern church in general to swallow, is that we need to be observing the Lord's Day. Why do you think that is? Well, primarily, I think, because there's a definitional problem. There's a definitional problem. So we talk about the centrality of worship and all its beauty and all its, the, 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 all its, uh, all its glory through the work of the liturgy, right? Um, evangelical churches function through the liturgy of spontaneity. And so if it's spontaneity on Sunday mornings, it's spontaneity through life. And so that eagerness to gather together is a good thing. My father was a Baptist minister in northeastern Brazil, and I was too young to remember a lot of what he said from the pulpit. One thing that stuck with me was, the sign of a healthy church is how long they stay when the service is over. Now, in our congregation in Florida, I, we have to do some extreme measures to kick our people out. It'll be two, three hours after the service is over. They're still, I say, you love each other so much. It's a good thing. But that kind of life that is built sometimes during the week in many ways through the hospitality and through the rituals that kind of encompass the life of the church sets the stage for what happens on Sunday morning. So if the church is not connected during the week, the Sunday morning experience is going to be a poor one. And that's, that's reflected in many ways. And this is my, we have had probably seven marriages in the last um, 12 months in our church. I mean, we're, there's a lot of people getting married. And it's a good thing, but one of the things I tell all the young folks when they sit through the premarital counseling session is that the decision to be in church is going to be made the day you get married. That's it. Not Saturday night, not Sunday morning. You make that once. Honey, as I vow to love you, till death do us part, we vow also, unless providentially hindered, we will be with God's people the Lord's day. We will gather with them. We'll do whatever is possible to be with them. There are seasons for Sabbath, right? There are seasons for Sabbath. There was a season where my wife had three little kids under the age of four. There are seasons for Sabbath, and I want to instruct. So those are the seasons, actually, where the church can say, let me be hospitable to you, Mommy, as you're working through these things. But the evangelical church has lost its fervor in its rituals during the week, and therefore they have lost their fervor in their rituals on Sunday morning. Great question. Yes, sir, in the back there. Can you talk some more about liturgical imagination with children? I have two small kids, and uh, we're going to do that now with the church calendar and activities and things like that. Great question. Great question. I could probably send you a few things that I've written on that topic there. The question of liturgical imagination is interesting. Because if you just take your classical categories, if children are in their grammar stage, that means the absorption rate is significant in their early days, right? Which means they're moved by rituals. They're moved by habits of the church and their habits of their own homes. And so um, I have four boys. I have one girl and four boys. And before dinner, we always sing. 
That is shaping their liturgical imagination. I'm also training my boys to lead music wherever they are. And so I'll tell my five-year-old, why don't you start leading the doxology? I want to begin to put the happy kind of pressure on them so that they're growing into liturgical rituals, into liturgical imagination. Bible readings, I encourage my boys to read the Bible out loud to everyone. I want to be able to project these things. These are forming the liturgical imagination of our children. But the other element also is, is, is befitting for the kinds of things we refer to in the church calendar. The calendar of the church in the mainline tradition is virtually, it's putrid. It exists and it, it, it doesn't have, there's no life born into them. If you walk into a mainline church on Easter Sunday, you would think this is Ash Wednesday. So their liturgical imagination is not developed. So you have the grand nature of Easter with all those weeks. So there are little things you can add into the rituals of the home. In our home, for every Sunday of Easter, we open a champagne bottle. We have people over. And I let my little boys, one, they can hurt themselves a few times, and they have. That's okay. It's part of the imaginational training. <laughs> Pop that champagne bottle, and they will say, Christ is risen. And everybody says, he is risen indeed. Hallelujah. All these little actions are building liturgical imagination in your kids. And the little ones, your two-year-old, is going to begin to see that now with mom and dad. They're going to absorb it, and our role is that there will be better champagne poppers when they're your age. <laughs> Any other thoughts or questions? Yes, sir. Hey, Graham. Yuri, um, I, so Doug has made mention sometimes of intellectual cul-de-sacs or dead ends that we need to be aware of as, as, this, you know, as a congregation. From your experience, where do, what are some things that you think are maybe dangerous intellectual trends that particularly beset our own congregation of churches and um, maybe caution to us regarding those things? I'd be very honest to tell you exactly what I think because I'm leaving. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad we prepped for this question, Graham. Uh, <laughs> oh boy <laughs> oh this is so lovely I love this here I think the intellectual I think, I think one of the greatest intellectual threats to our church today in many many ways are the kinds of things is the, is the appeal of Rome and Eastern Orthodoxy I think those are massively dangerous threats to the church the preservation of our Protestant roots needs to be central to everything we do Rome and the East are deadly. They're deadly because what you see is the promulgation of that culture. If you think about this and how these things function, think about how Roman Catholicism functions in South America, which is 90% Catholic, right? The other extreme of that in Brazil is now um, the growing Pentecostalist, the Pentecostal movement. And now we have a massive growth of Catholic charismatic movement taking place in Brazil. It's an interesting sociological study there. But what I'm really curious about is how these religious, these religious affections touch on the life of the people in that culture. Religion must be translated to practice. Protestantism, we have plenty to complain about, yeah, but our problems are a little different. Over there, their problems are, their problems are that it creates a monological culture. And what I mean by that is that in, in Rome and Eastern Orthodoxy, because the liturgy is more monological, it's more one-sided, the priest speaks. The priest goes behind the veil. The priest does everything. The priest consecrates the mass. The people don't participate and don't respond. What that does culturally 
is that it creates a culture that is one-sided in terms of communication, which means the people become prepped and ripe and ripe for tyranny. When the Brazilian culture went through COVID, the government spoke and the people said, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, in every single way. In the United States, because of our Protestant heritage and roots, we still have a dialogical culture, a culture that's able to talk back and to communicate. I think the East and the West, the Eastern Church, the Eastern Orthodox Roman Catholic, are massive threats, not just as a theological and intellectual, but also as a, as a cultural dimension. I think Protestantism needs to absorb a kind of uh, triperspectivalism to think through intellectual issues. We accept the normativity of the Bible. We delight in the history of the church, but we also find great joy in the moods and the emotions of God's people. When we, certain, when we only focus on one of those orientations, history, we become one-sided and we fail the test, I think, that God wants. We fail the comprehensive nature of God's truth. Good question. Hope that helps a little bit. One more. In the back, yes. I'm going to ask you to give an oversimplification to a question that probably has a lot of answers, but just okay. one thing. So as you see uh, in modern evangelicalism, the slipping away of you know the importance of church attendance, and you see that not just because of COVID, but even before that. If you had to pick one thing that was kind of the impetus, or that that could be that could be attributed to, would you say it's postmodernism? Would you say it's higher uh, culture of individualism? Would you say it's the breakdown of the family structure? What, I mean, yeah, <clears throat> great question. I, I, I would say yes to all those, but I think I think individualism plays a much greater role. Um, and you saw this um, with Carl Truman's book, the what's the title? Um, the rise, the rise and triumph of the self. Yeah, um, that's a great book, by the way. A great book for a study to be, uh, to be considered here. But individualism, what it essentially does is it allows people to become uh, to become gods in themselves, which means that they can they they, they create what what um, uh, Truman calls a, a social imaginary, which is a way of interpreting reality. Right. So if individualism is separated from the corpus, from the body, then individualism can say. Um, I can create things after my own image. This is my church. And so what happened during COVID within three months, if you saw the Barner, uh, Barner Institute research, within three months, the streaming services, which were very romantic through the means of pajamas and orange juice, you remember that glorious season, within three months, over 40% of streamers were no longer gathering on Sunday morning in front of the television. Within three months. Now what about 36 months later? So because the church failed to practice her story week after week, however difficult that season was, because the church failed to practice her story, her liturgical muscles atrophied, and now they don't know how to get back into that story. And so individualism caused that in the beginning, and now we're, we're, the role, this is why what we're talking about is so significant, because the role of the corporate gathering is going to play a much more significant function in the life of the church than it did 36 months ago. Yeah. All right, thank you very much. Appreciate it.